Morrison's shadow government, unions launch skills and migration plan, wages cut as profits soar, and the good news is about hydrogen. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. I am your co-host, Ben Davison, and I am in gloomy and grey central Victoria, and joining me from the Harbour City, the capital of New South Wales, is the great, the glorious, the ever-effervescent love of my life, my wife, author of best-selling book, QAnon and on, a short and shocking history of internet conspiracy cults, and breaker of chains, Bam Badham. How are you, my darling? I'm all right. I'm all right. Hasn't been the best week of my life, as you know, but I'm no. still here. No, I know. And regular listeners of the week on Wednesday will know that your mother has been uh, dealing with health issues and we've had some not great news this week about that, but you are you are holding up remarkably well, my love. And Thank I know you. lots of people are sending you messages. And people's support is really amazing. Um, I'd just like to thank everybody. Somebody, in, in fact, I'll name them. Simon Earle, uh, who was the Labor candidate for the seat of Cook, running directly against Scott Morrison in the last federal election. My mother lives in the seat of Cook and and got to know Simon during the campaign, was very proud to support him. Uh, he came round with gelato for my mother today. And I was like, Simon Earle coming round with gelato for my very sick mother is more than Scott Morrison has done for this seat, despite being the local member, at one point the Prime Minister and the Home Affairs Minister and the Finance Minister and the Minister for Industry, Resources and Science and the Treasurer. And there was another one. Oh, and the Minister for Health. Yes. <laughs> Prime Minister, five portfolios and the local member and literally... Simon L bringing around gelato is more direct help my mother has had uh, from, uh, you know, in any kind of federal capacity in some time. So thank you, Simon Earl. It should have been you. It should have been Simon. And look, it may well yet be. I do want to give a shout out at the, at the start of this episode. This is our 101st episode of The Week on Wednesday, and it is our two-year anniversary on Twitter. I got a Twitter notification. And we did say in our 100th episode, if people – let us know on our social media channels that they had listened to all 100 episodes. We would give them a shout-out. We normally give shout-outs to our cadre and our Extend the Reach supporters. So that's people who jump on uh, www.buymeacoffee.com slash week on Wednesday and either make a contribution of 10 bucks a month or 20 bucks a month to help us run the podcast and, and build the audience. But we did say we would do a special shout-out for people who let us know uh, that they had honestly listened to all 100 episodes. And, in fact, we, there is a list of people, Van. I'm going to read out the names because it also includes someone who started listening at the 40th episode and has gone back and listened to the entire back catalogue uh, and was amazed at how the corruption in the New South Wales Liberal Party has continued for the entire stream of the of the uh, of the podcast, but these are the people who have listened to all 100, and I hope they're listening today because it'd be a bit sad if they listened to 100 and then didn't get their shout out on the 101st. But it's Renee McGee, Vivian King, Adrian Gilchrist, Tony Ambrosio, Catherine Ivy, Leanne Richardson, Gail Vest, Damian Marley, Wasted Potential, Karina Barley. Vic Norton, Kieran Branson, Anthony Villa, Ross Kenner, Mish Phillips, and Rosh L. And you may hear some of those names later on when we go through our cadre and extend the reach supporters because I recognise some of them as being people who've supported us for some time. Huge thank you to them, and we really appreciate your ongoing support. Van, let's talk about the Minister for Everything uh, and the local member for Cook because he is still the local member for Cook. He despite. is, despite the fact that at least one of his colleagues has publicly called for his resignation. So um, the new Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, a phrase which never stops making me feel more relieved and comfortable, uh, discovered recently that during the pandemic, Scott Morrison had himself secretly appointed as not only prime, he was the prime minister, but he had himself appointed as the minister for health and the minister for finance under the uh, under d- during the pandemic. The pandemic went yeah. off 
went off to see the Governor General, which is what you have to do to confer the authority um, of the Crown, because we are not a republic, remember, we are a constitutional monarchy, and the Governor General represents our Queen in these matters, also words I hate saying, and went to see the Governor General and secretly had himself appointed to these positions. Apparently, he had received advice from Christian Porter, the former Attorney General. Who was Attorney um, General at the time. He was Attorney General. He was Attorney General at the time um, before he wasn't. And the situation, and Christian Porter had advised him that this was something that legally he probably could do. Yeah, but I want to jump in there too because he didn't, it doesn't appear as though he sought advice from the Solicitor General. So, yeah, who is the actual lawyer for the yeah, government. Yeah, that's right. The Solicitor General is the actual lawyer. And, and if you were doing something, you would, you would normally, you would think you would, that if you were doing something that hadn't been done before, you would normally seek the advice of the Attorney General and the Solicitor General because, of course, what Anthony Albanese has done is sought the advice of the Solicitor General about what Scott Morrison did. Well, this is the thing. So, he, but he didn't tell the whole cabinet, no. and he didn't tell the caucus. So, the difference between the cabinet and the caucus: when a party is in government, they're the uh, most powerful ministers. Not even all the ministers, but the most powerful ministers form the cabinet of the of the government, and they are the theoretically highest decision making yeah. uh, body. Um, the caucus refers to whoever is in the party of government or the party of the opposition or one of the other parties. Like the, the members of parliament from that party form the caucus. The, the cabinet was not told and the caucus was not told that Morrison was doing this, which is unprecedented, absolutely unprecedented. There have been times in Australian history, like during the Second World War, where parliamentary decisions, obviously Cabinet has confidential meetings, uh, parliamentary decisions have sometimes been made um, without the full without the full discussion aired in front of the Australian people due to national security reasons. They're pretty serious circumstances. Pretty rare, pretty rare. And obviously historically it, it has been the case, in fact, it was the case with Anthony Albanese, in various periods of government, formations of government, like when uh, the Governor-General has given consent of a party to form a government because it appears they have won the election or conclusively yeah. it is known they have won the election but who uh, who wins which seat is not yet known. The Governor-General gives consent to the, the Prime Minister who represents that party, the leader who represents that party, to take on numerous portfolios in various combinations until the full toss is known. So very famously this happened in 1972 where it was clear that Gough Whitlam um, and the Labor Party had won the 72 election but they didn't quite know where all the seats were going to fall and obviously Labor government in 1972 had a pretty big agenda, i.e. bring the troops home from Vietnam immediately. And there was this very famous period that was known as the duumvirate, meaning the rule of two, where Gough Whitlam and Lance Barnard, who had definitely won their seats, they divided up all the ministries between them so they had the authority to make ministerial decisions immediately. And this country was effectively governed by two people for a period of time. But, but Van, I want to make the point here that, that was well known. That was publicised. The people, the public, were aware of it. The parliament was aware of it. You know, even even the people who, you know, may have lost their seats were still aware of it. You know, this is a very different set of circumstances. Well, this is the issue. Like, yes, sometimes decisions are, are made for national security reasons without informing the the majority of Australian people. But there are processes around that. Yeah. Yes, there are times. Like as I was saying. Anthony Albanese was committed to going to a quad meeting yeah. that Scott Morrison had organised, and that's the alliance of uh, America, India, Japan, and Australia th- yeah. that he had to take off immediately. So had to so had to appoint a foreign minister, Penny Wong, and a couple of other ministers really quickly in order to officially attend that quad meeting. But these things are temporary. They are transparent. Discussion is made before the Australian people, so everybody knows what's going on. Those precedents 
absolutely shredded by Scott Morrison. Yeah. Absolutely, totally, and in every way shredded by Scott Morrison. Yeah, and I really want to focus in here on what Scott Morrison has done because, you know, putting history to one side, and I think we can do that because, quite frankly, he has shredded all the precedents. So he was appointed um, to the department to administer, and this is important because he gave a press conference today where he tried to justify what he did and people are tearing it apart, and quite rightly, uh, and it comes on the back of a Facebook post he did yesterday where he tried to justify what he did uh, and clearly it didn't hold water because, as you say, um, Karen Andrews has called for him to resign since he did that. Um, but he was appointed to administer the Department of Health on the 14th of March 2020. Uh, he was appointed to administer the Department of Finance on March 30, 2020. Uh, he was appointed to administer the Department of Industry, Science, Energy and Resources on April 15, 2021. He was also appointed to administer the Department of Home Affairs on May 6, 2021. And this was, it was pointed out by one of your colleagues at The Guardian that that was two days after The Guardian was reporting that Karen Andrews was considering releasing the Bill of Wheeler family, uh, just a coincidence, I'm sure. And he was appointed to administer the Department of the Treasury on May 6, 2021, uh, which was the week before the 2021 budget. Right. Now, this is shocking stuff because, as you informed me, these kind of decisions are usually like decisions made with the Governor-General, uh, what they call gazetted, which is they are circulated in a gazette, in a report that comes out so everybody knows, you know, who the government is and where the lines of accountability are. And this is the problem if these decisions are not transparent, if there is no process, if there is, in fact, no public record of them taking place, those lines of accountability, which are the most basic responsibility of a government before their electorate and the democracy of the country, the, those lines of accountability have disappeared. Who is in charge? Who is responsible? Who takes the fall? On whose head does the blame fall? All of these are suddenly very, very blurry. And this is precisely what went on with Scott Morrison. Ben, I'm if I sound particularly nasal and angry, as you know, I revert to the full bogan when I am furious. And I'm just enraged. Like I'm yeah. absolutely enraged that Scott Morrison showed such total selfish contempt for the people who had given their consent to be governed by him. Well, I want to talk about, I mean, we'll talk about what some people have said about it because there are some just amazing quotes. But before we, before we get into that, I, I, do want to, I do want to focus in on what Morrison himself has said because I, I, for my sins, did watch his press conference and it was really, it was really startling. He genuinely believes that he did the right thing, that these were emergency powers. He referred to them as re effectively reserve powers. He said he didn't use them and then immediately talked about how he, the circumstance where he did use them uh, and did override one of the ministers. He said that he didn't want to tell people because he didn't want his ministers to feel like they were, you know, undermined or somehow under more scrutiny. But he admits that he told Greg Hunt straight away when he took uh, the control, effective control of the health portfolio. I mean, the, the the kind of it wasn't rambling. It was very, it was very calculated and very succinct and very well spoken press conference. But it was also full of just contradictory points. I mean, he he claimed the minister didn't know, so he wasn't exercising influence. Except Greg Hunt was told, and. When a minister made a decision that he disagreed with, he immediately exercised the power of the ministry and then told the country at a press conference that he had intervened as prime minister. But in a letter to the company who was impacted by that decision, he made it clear that he was acting as the minister appointed by the governor general. I mean, the whole thing reeks of an absolute power grab. Like, you know, this concept, he had this concept in this press conference where he was basically saying, well, I was doing this because of COVID and at any point someone could get COVID and then, you know, the ministers have all this power by law and we need to, to make the country run. 
Peter Dutton got COVID. He was defence minister, and at no point did Morrison take over defence. Like, of course he didn't take over defence because Peter Dutton would have gone ballistic if Scott Morrison had put his fingers in that pie. Oh, it is just amazing. But, I mean, what is extraordinary? Yes, Peter Dutton would have gone ballistic if Morrison had have put his fingers in that pie. But Morrison usurped the treasurer, Josh Frydenberg. Yeah. Josh Frydenberg, like there are a lot of people who don't like Scott Morrison but and for every valid reason. Like every single valid reason on earth to not like someone is a reason to not like Scott Morrison. And... <laughs> Josh, Fre- but no one has a bigger claim on that than Josh Frydenberg. Josh Frydenberg was the treasurer. He was the leader of the moderate faction in the Liberal Party. He had been touted and groomed as a future prime minister. People had talked about Frydenberg becoming prime minister. He was seen as a natural leadership successor. You know, he was it, 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 absolutely like Liberal Party establishment. And it was Freinberg who had this power in the party because of his popularity and influence in and the fundraising ability. And, and fundraising, fundraising ability. ability. He drew a lot of money towards the Liberal Party and was rewarded for his party loyalty and leadership by Scott Morrison repeatedly taking up policy positions that hemorrhaged voters and donors from Josh, from Josh Freidenberg's support base. Josh Freidenberg... His power base were the seats that are now run by the Teals that once upon used to be safe, once upon a time used to be safe Liberal seats, but who the likes of Scott Morrison absolutely shredded from the Liberal Party. Can we just, I mean, we do talk a lot about, you know, the Teals and these sort of, um, you know, uh, socially liberal, economically conservative type political personalities. I just want to remind everybody the seat of Higgins was won by somebody in the Labor Party, which is just unheard of, um, such was the unpopularity of Scott Morrison. But Josh Frydenberg, stuck by Morrison, never disparaged him, you know, had people actually coming to him, and this was reported in the papers, coming to him going, Morrison is killing us, you have to roll him, and Frydenberg wouldn't do it out of a sense of loyalty. Frydenberg has just found out that Morrison, this person who he totally defended and supported and stood by and did everything for, despite all of the political carnage to Frydenberg personally that Morrison was responsible for, totally stabbed him and had himself appointed treasurer without Frydenberg's knowledge when Frydenberg was a treasurer. There is some debate about whether the budget has a has a has the heft of legality behind it the last budget because the person who is supposed to deliver the budget is the person most recently appointed treasurer who by the way was not Josh Frydenberg it was Scott Morrison Frydenberg has been described as being livid and I'm like overdue Joshy overdue well, you should have is- let your anger rip some time ago son things might be very different for you now well this is the thing isn't it and you know every Victorian will remember Josh Frydenberg the Victorian day after day during lockdown coming out and attacking Victoria and attacking Dan Andrews and just really really putting a pile on to Victoria and and you know there's some footage, I remember the footage of him, you know, I think it was like day 12 in a row where he had been doing this and he just had this look of a man who was making hostage videos. And, yeah, you can imagine, I can only imagine really the, his response to this. He's not the only one, of course, you know, it would appear that most of the ministers didn't know. Karen Andrews says she didn't know. She's the one who's called for him to resign from Parliament. She was Home Affairs Minister. ASIO, which, of course, was in the Home Affairs portfolio, the head of ASIO has confirmed that they were not informed of Morrison's appointment. I mean, that is that is a startling, startling revelation. Um, the Department of Finance didn't know about Morrison's appointment. Of course, at this point, Finance was doling out JobKeeper money. I mean, there is so many aspects to this, so many elements to it. I want to talk a little bit about what people have said because, of course, John Howard, the, the 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 man who gets rolled out to defend every horrible thing the Liberal Party ever does uh, and to lose state elections apparently, 
um, has tried to downplay the situation, but it's, I mean, it's not holding much water. Turnbull has called it troubling that no one tried to stop him. He's slammed it. Even Tony Abbott. Now, I mean, Dan, I don't know about you, but Tony Abbott has called it unusual and strange. Now, when a man who... man who ate a raw onion and knighted Prince Philip thinks it's unusual and strange. That that really, I mean, it kind of says all that needs to be said in a way, but it, it, it is Jackie Lambie, who, of course, does hold a balance of power position in the Senate, has said that Morrison blatantly lied because uh, he did go on radio uh, yesterday uh, and say that he couldn't recall... Uh, being uh, appointed to any positions other than finance and health. Of course, it then came out that all these other ones have been appointed to, and, and Lambie's point is you don't not recall getting that ticked off by the Governor-General. Fair point in my view, Jackie, fair point. Um, Barnaby Joyce has said that he shouldn't resign because there was nothing illegal done. I don't think anyone's surprised to learn that the threshold of appropriate conduct for Barnaby Joyce is is it a crime that carries a penalty of 10 years or more? If not, all good, mate. Uh, but he has also admitted that he knew about the Resources Ministry appointment uh, because the fact of the matter is that the other Resources Minister, such a weird series of words to string together, the other Resources Minister was Keith Pitt, who was, of course, a National Party member. Uh, funnily enough, Keith Pitt didn't think that it was worth informing the rest of the country that the Prime Minister was also doing his job for him. Like, so bizarre, just a series of bizarre things. And and frankly, you know, you would think that the Liberal Party, having been decimated in those teal seats, having gone through three years of Scott Morrison being very Scott Morrison about every issue, refusing to take responsibility. I mean, today's press conference was another one. We just, you know, it was a difficult time and I did what was necessary and I acted in the national interest and I have no regrets sort of an approach. You would think that the Liberals would go, you know what, if we're ever going to get back into power, we have to distance ourselves from this guy. We have to draw a line under it. But not Susan with three S's lay. Oh, no. Apparently she thinks Morrison doesn't need to resign. And uh, Dutton says Morrison was in a difficult situation, but he does support the idea that the current prime minister should get some legal advice. He seems to be getting advised by someone because his position has softened in the last 48 hours uh, from from basically going, everyone just needs to get over it and move on, to, oh, well, maybe, maybe we should look at whether or not uh, two years of ministerial decisions were actually legal or not. Yeah, so it is very interesting what's going on with Dutton and it's difficult to tell. Funnily enough, Ben and I aren't so close to Liberal Party power brokers and and trying to work out what the actual internal political state of play is is kind of fascinating. So John Howard was wheeled out to um, to say all kinds of confusing things last night. He did an interview with Sarah Ferguson on the 7.30 report, and I just want to praise Sarah Ferguson and Laura Tingle again. I've got to say their one-two punch duo on the 7.30 report has made that show essential viewing again, and it's intelligent and it's well-researched and it's just full-bore traditional you know, penetrating political journalism. It's so good between the two of them. And and Sarah Ferguson just, she was not giving Howard any quarter last night. She wanted to know what the, what the justification for Morrison doing this was because this is the thing. The secrecy is the most alarming point of it because during the pandemic we all went along to get along because we were facing this illness. I mean, I remember the terror you do, we all do, the terror of the virus spreading in the community when there was no vaccine and people going to hospital and people dying. And we accepted lockdowns and we accepted all kinds of restrictions. And we did that because we all knew as Australians, it was in the community interest for us to do that. And we had to stick together because we're facing something unprecedented. You know, even Scott Morrison coming to the electric going, I'm going to be signed into these various portfolios in case, you know, there is a COVID situation. 
everybody would have gone along with that. So why was there secrecy? This is the question. Anyway, so John Howard just, well, well, you know, it was a very difficult situation, Sarah. I mean, it was very tricky. And Sarah Ferguson put it to him, should Morrison resign? And Howard's, like, response to this was very interesting. We don't need to have an unnecessary by-election, really, (laughs) don't we? Because Morrison's behaviour has been secretive, deceptive, you know, power-hungry and shameful. So why don't we need a by-election in the seat of Cook where my mother lives? Is it because there was quite a significant swing to Labor in the federal election and Simon Earle is a very credible local candidate who has built a significant profile, which in a by-election where he's not competing for media attention and resources with, you know, 150 other Labor candidates might have quite the pull on the electorate, Or do they still think Cook is quite safe, which, you know, they have, they do hold the the seat on 12%, which is safe margin. But are their internal problems in the New South Wales Liberal Party so bad and so toxic that a pre selection competition would be incredibly destructive and divisive for them? Or is it a bit of column A and a bit of column B that they can't afford to get rid of Morrison because it would be like taking the the cork out of the leak on the sinking ship? Well, this what is, is going on? This is a really good point that you raise because Morrison's entire last really five years, I would say, has been about accumulating power both through the parliament as a minister, then as prime minister, um, to the point where we find ourselves now, uh, where he was taking on additional ministries, but also within the New South Wales branch of the Liberal Party, there has been exposés about that. Um, there's a whole school of thought that the reason why the Liberals did so badly was because in some cases they didn't have candidates in seats that were marginal winnable seats up until the week before the election took place. I mean, it is... It is just mind-boggling how much power this man basically accumulated for himself. And he kept trying to make this point that, oh, I didn't use it, I didn't use it, I didn't use it, as though somehow or another him secretly having it but not using it made it okay. And and the journalists at the press conference, like they were not letting him go on that. They were, I think they were as flabbergasted as, as the country is that, he just doesn't seem to think that the secrecy is a problem, that that we actually, in a democracy, require transparency. You know, and, and Albo gave a press conference. He was in Queensland today uh, with Anastasia Palaszczuk talking, uh, I think, about health and, and some, some work they're, they're doing uh, in Queensland. And, of course, he was asked about this at his press conference because it happened just after Morrison's. Uh, and and Albo just seemed as as sort of flabbergasted as as the rest of us. And- Everyone is flabbergasted. Everyone is because I mean this is the thing that he went off to see the Governor General. It wasn't gazetted. It wasn't reported. Ministers who had their own portfolios taken over by Scott Morrison weren't told. The Treasurer did not know that he was suddenly a co-Treasurer, and that's a problem. The press gallery didn't know. Like the the normal checks and balances on power did not apply. If you want to make a move like that, you make it in front of the Australian people so everybody knows what is going on and can participate in the democratic decision around that, either support it or complain about it, exert electoral, political or discursive pressure. Like these are the checks and balances on power that democracies are about. Power in a democracy is a conversation. You are given consent to govern by the people because democracy, let's just go through the word one more time for people who are not getting it. Demos, the people, the community of the people, Chrissy, rule, the people rule. That's how this is supposed to work. Not Scott Morrison does whatever the hell he likes because somebody has made him king. You described this yesterday as Napoleonic, and it is. It is Napoleonic. Well, it is Napoleonic. It is It is really, you know, one step away from declaring himself first consul. Uh, maybe not for life, but I don't think he's far away. Like when you think about those ministries 
uh, there is a lot of power when it comes to treasury finance, health, resources, home affairs. I mean, his his capacity to control most of the country was Napoleonic-like. The fact that he only exercised those powers on a couple of occasions uh, and, and that he did so and then kind of lied about it. Well, didn't kind of lie about it, did lie about it. He, he, he said that he made a decision as prime minister when, in fact, he made a decision as resources minister. That is a lie. And, and you know, Albo made this point. Morrison has said that he is sorry that he, for any concern that he's caused to the people who were ministers in his government. But Albo's point was, well, how about an apology to the Australian people? How about an apology for misleading all of parliament? How about an apology for misleading the media? You know, these, these position, this situation was in place when the election happened and Morrison was out there campaigning going, oh, you won't know who this minister will be under Labor or that minister will be under Labor, when he knew that we didn't know who was running the government. It was a shadow government. It was a shadow government being run by Scott Morrison out of the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. In fact, it appears as though many people in the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet weren't informed. And what would have happened? I mean, this is the question. What would have happened if there had been a national security issue that fell to the Home Affairs Minister and there had been a disagreement? Would Scott Morrison have overruled Karen Andrews? And would ASIO then have to make a decision about whose instructions to follow? I mean, these are these are troubling ideas, and they are dealt with by having transparency, clarity, by having a, a clear chain of command. And the reason why ministers are empowered, they are empowered by laws that are passed by parliament. So the Biosecurity Act that gives the health minister that high degree of power in the event of a pandemic is a law that is passed by parliament. It's not a government decision. It's not an instrument that the prime minister bestows upon the minister. It is a, a function of our democracy where the elected representatives from all sides vote on the legislation. So for Morrison to go, well, I don't trust that process that gives the minister that authority. So I'm going to make myself the minister as well so that I can choose to overrule that minister if I want to. Secretly. Is a deliberate, secretly. Secretly is a deliberate attempt to undermine the democratic power and the sovereignty of our parliament. It is mind-blowing that he then stands up there today and goes, I acted in the national interest. No, you didn't, yeah, no. mate. It, like, it, it, he's one of these modern male leaders who seems to think their interest is the national interest. And it's like, dear Scott Morrison, you are not the nation. What you like is not what we like. That's why we have <laughs> mechanisms like elections. So you can receive communication very clearly about what we don't like. Like, part of me is just like, if the Labor Party did something like this, the Liberals oh. would be, like, marching in the streets. The Liberals would be demanding, like, inquiries and it would be, like, can you imagine if Daniel Andrews did something like secretly had himself appointed to a bunch of things? I understand. Well, that's, well, that's the other point, right, because, you know, he made the point, oh, it was, te- it was tough times and, you know, we, you, you're all standing on the shore of hindsight looking back, but I was trying to steer the ship of state in the tempest. Almost exact words, by the way. Weird analogy, but there is oh, exact God. Words. Yep. You know, and somebody's made the point online, well, hang on a minute, the premiers uh, were also steering ships in tempests and we didn't see them secretly making themselves minister for everything. In fact, they were giving daily press conferences and daily updates and being very transparent about how they were governing the, the states. I mean, this this is not going to go away. Morrison wants it to. He, he basically tried to use the press conference to draw a line under it. You know, somebody said, well, you know, that was Morrison's attempt to draw a line under this and all it's really done is in, intensified people's outrage, confusion, 
and lack of clarity about why this even occurred. Uh, and obviously, Albo is going to get that uh, report from the Solicitor General. It looks like Monday, I think, Van. From oh, the it is, it's, it's full on. It's absolutely full on. But it raises some really important questions. Like the, the situation with the Governor-General is an important one to consider because we are talking about uh, a republic in this country again and we have to ask ourselves, like, what is, what is the point of the Governor-General's office if they just rubber stamp everything an individual Prime Minister wants to do? Like no. that these... I- and that point's been made too that the Governor General, the convention would have suggested, uh, uh, and I think I think it was Troy Bramston who is not necessarily somebody who I you know particularly like uh, reading his stuff, but he he did a thread on this where he talked about well the Governor General does have a role to say, um, Prime Minister, you must inform the Parliament. You know, Prime Minister, I, I'm warning you that your actions are inconsistent with convention. You know, like there are things the Governor-General could have done that it would appear this Governor-General didn't do. And Julian Hill, the Labor member for Bruce, um, you know, he, he's gone a bit outside um, what Albo has said because Albo has refused to criticise the Governor-General, which is the convention, right? The Prime Minister doesn't criticise the Governor-General. That's the convention. There's Albo doing the right thing democratically. Julian Hill is not a member of cabinet, is therefore not in executive government, has a little more leeway conventionally to uh, to criticise the governor. And he, he's made the point, and I'll quote this, uh, that he is struggling to see how the governor-general's position remains tenable. I think that's a fairly reasonable thing to say given that the governor-general essentially participated in the creation of a secret shadow government. Yeah. And it's just, I just find it amazing. And let's just, Scott Morrison going, oh, I did it in the interest of the nation. I'm so self-sacrificing and holy. It was the decision I had to make. And I'm like, so you conferred all of those executive powers on yourself and yet you still screwed everything up. So you took on all of these powers that you didn't tell anybody about because you had to be there to save the nation in case someone got COVID or something, you know, you had to be able to intervene. And yet you totally screwed up the vaccine rollout. Like you cut bad deals. You pushed forward policy that didn't work, the failed app. You had all of that power. And yet, Scott Morrison... You were a messy, messy, messy creature with it. Like- <laughs> well, let's, let's talk about the repercussions of some of that because, you know, we are living in a post-Morrison uh, pandemic era and, and, you know, we are coming up, I think we're now, what, two and a half weeks away from the Jobs and Skills Summit. The Australian Union Movement, put out their first paper last week, uh, discussion paper about uh, this last week, um, and now others are starting to try and engage a bit more in the discussions. And, and I note that the CEO of Aki, the Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry, Andrew McKellar, had a press club address today where he basically slammed the ACTU's economic reform uh, discussion paper from last week, calling it a throwback. And says that only sensible and modest reform should be attempted. I think that's really interesting given that Morrison had all that power and today it's also been announced that we've had the largest real wage cut in recorded history in this country. The union movement has come out with a second paper today talking about skills and migration uh, and I'm going to quote Michelle O'Neill, the president of the Australian Council of Trade Unions, who says, "Our migration and skill systems are broken." I think that's pretty. I think that's pretty clear cut. Um, the the union movement, you know, and again, we always encourage people to join their union. Join your union. AustralianUnions.org.au/slash/wow w-o-w to join your union, because you know the the union movement is actually engaging in this process in good faith. You know, they've put forward ideas in that economics paper last week, which we talked about. This week, they're saying, look, if if 
the country does certain things, we can support more permanent migration. So if we fix our wages setting process to improve bargaining, to independently test claims around shortages, to make sure people have actually tried paying people more, if we lift the floor on what migrant workers have to be paid as a minimum, you know, if we fix our skill system locally and say 70% of public funding goes to public TAFEs, uh, the Commonwealth funds 50% of employed apprentices, apprentices get a bonus, so the more people want to do that, you know, and we change the migration settings so skilled migrants are not tied to a single employer but to an industry uh, so that your passport and your paycheck aren't controlled by your boss. Um, another great quote, Michelle O'Neill was on RN this morning, Van, I don't know if you had a chance to catch catch her there. I'll post a link uh, as well for, for people uh, through our Buy Me A Coffee page. But Michelle said, if you have your passport and your paycheck controlled by your boss, it's a recipe for exploitation. And we know that, right? Like we've seen that time yeah, and again. Yeah, we know that. We know that all too well. You know, you you get shepherded into accommodation provided by the boss that looks absolutely nothing like the market rate. You know, we've seen exploitation, compromised circumstances. We've seen, you know, structuralised conditions for sexual harassment in, like, all of these things. Yes, we have seen this. And, you know, this debate around skills and migration, we should keep in mind here that what, the union movement is saying is if we put in place the right systems and structures, we can have 200,000 new migrants coming to Australia, becoming part of the, the, the great Australian experience, contributing to our society, making a life for themselves here. But we have to put in place the right supports to make that a success. You know, I was reading a report that that looked at some of that exploitation, and it's so diverse, right? You know, the Australian Workers' Union has put forward an idea and, and the ACTU said it should be discussed, which was that people who come as a migrant worker should be automatically put in a union. That's been described as having an opt-out, you know, so if you don't want to be in a union, you can say you don't want to be, but effectively you put in a union so you're given supports. That seems actually pretty reasonable to me. Mm. The CEO of Aki and some business groups have screamed about this, as you can imagine. Why? Well, they just say that it's, you know, uh, that, that it's, I don't know, it's ideological, I think. It's I think totally they- ideological. It's them going, because what's wrong with an opt-out clause? Fine, opt-out, sure, go crazy. Yeah. Be a conscientious objector to unionism. It seems pretty nuts and means you'll have, you know, less agency in the workplace, but sure. But for people coming to this country to work, obviously, you know, an automatic representation and capacity for advocacy, again, let's use these terms, lines of accountability, um, all of these things, like, are to the benefit of everyone. And especially gets to the point about there is n- there is no problem like the whole, oh, the migrants come here and they take our jobs. That is not true exploitation of migrants, which is not done by migrants, it is done by employers, that is what denigrates labour standards for everybody. You know, that creating a pool of workers who are structurally made vulnerable so their conditions can be reduced and their wages pushed down because they don't have the same rights as workers or they don't have access to the same advocacy as other workers, that is the problem in this system. Here is a remedy to this situation. You know, inherent community building and advocacy is what stops exploitation. Absolutely. And I thought it was really interesting because even news.com, who tried to run this as a big sort of story, you know, oh, the ACTU wants to do this. And Michelle O'Neill said, look, the summit should discuss the idea, right? The AW, the Australian Workers' Union, are the ones who've put it forward. And Dan Walton, I mean, Dan Walton is a very smart guy, and he's got workers in some very exploited, particularly in agriculture, the agricultural sector. But also, like, my, Migrant workers have been exploited in everything from agriculture to solar farm construction, higher education, hospitality, home care services. Like, it is not a singular industry. And so this idea, I think, has some merit. Brendan O'Connor, the skills minister, 
uh, was quoted in that news.com article uh, saying he hadn't seen the AWU proposal yet. Uh, I'm sure that they'll be emailing it to him tonight. But he did say that, and I quote, we need to make sure that workers, whether they're in the labor market now or coming in through the skilled pathway, are not exploited. Like that's fundamental, right? And quite frankly, we have had a decade or more, really, of that not being the case. Migrant workers have been exploited and they've been exploited in so many industries. So I think these structural reforms are really important. I, I get why some business lobby groups don't want to do them. They see them as additional costs, but it's actually it's actually not an additional cost. It's it's the cost that it costs. Does that make sense? Am I, you know, like it, it's the real cost as opposed to the what I can get away with cost? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, look, you know, I would so, totally recommend people have a, have a read of that report. We'll post that on our social media like we did the last one. I think the ACTU is going to put out one of these reports every week. That's what they're talking about. And I think it's really important because this debate around skills and employment in this country will have an impact because where we are now, Van, you would have seen that wages have had the biggest cut ever. I mentioned it before. You know, it is absolutely, absolutely heartbreaking that we have some of the lowest unemployment in the history of this country, but we also have real wage cuts and we have record profits flowing in just about every sector of the economy. Oh, the, it's the profiteering, the naked profiteering of the moment, which is so difficult to deal with because we really are becoming a two-speed economy. You know, we're becoming an economy where if you're at the top, it's, you know, privileges galore and if, like ever-increasing streams of funding. And yet workers at the lower end of the wage scale are getting squeezed and squeezed and exploited and exploited. And it's it's not okay. Like it's not, it's not okay on any metric, the more economically divided a society becomes, the greater its social dysfunction and chaos results. And for all, all kinds of intersecting sociological factors inform that. You know, it, it creates like ag- aggression, disparity and, and inefficiency within economies when this happens. You know, if we don't if we don't step in to remediate the situation now, to stop the exploitation, to level the playing field, to equalize opportunity, like chaos and and dysfunction will only grow. And, and I is- don't want to live in that kind of society. Like I don't like you don't. The majority of Australians don't. Now is really the opportunity for looking at ways we can rebuild our economy in the wake of not only the disaster of the pandemic, but the disaster of nine years of coalition government and actually put in some structural opportunities for people to enjoy fairness and their fair share. And and I want to be really clear with people about this because there's been some talk from some business sectors that, oh, well, you know, the ACTU and Stanley McManus, they talk about record record profits. They talk about record profits. But, you know, once you take out mining uh, and the finance sector, you know, most sectors are, are not are not having records. And, and those, you know, mining and finance, they get higher wages anyway. Let's be really clear. The data from the ABS that came out today shows that mining, gas and electricity workers had the lowest wage growth, the lowest wage growth over the last 12 months. At the same time, Santos, a major gas company, tripled, tripled their half-year profit. There There is no connection to reality anymore in the arguments that get put forward by people who just want to let the market sort this out, because the market is the way the market sorts this out is it is giving billions of dollars of profit to people, to companies like Santos, like CBA, the Commonwealth Bank reported a nine point six billion dollar profit, and yesterday they were charged with twenty three criminal counts of wage underpayment. Of course, there there is such a disconnect here. BHP recorded. Its highest profit in a decade, the second highest ever, $34 billion, and is paying out a record dividend. 
the same time, workers in that sector have had their lo- uh, had the lowest wage growth of any sector in the economy. And you go, okay, well, let's exclude them. We can exclude them, Ben. You and I, we, we can do this. This is straightforward. Well, let's look at retail, JB Hi-Fi. Earnings, record earnings, record sales, $800 million in profit. Temple and Webster, we've all seen those cute ads that imply the woman's about to cheat on her husband with the delivery driver. 31% increase in revenue. Turns out those ads hit the mark. Super Retail, Super Cheap Auto, Rebel, MacPack, BCF, Boating, Camping, Fishing. Gee, it's so much fun. Sticks in my head. It's one of those earworms. Can't get it out. Record sales, $3.5 billion. Carsales.com, record profit up 23%. Grain Corp, had records in its agribusiness. That's growing wheat and processing, making flour for bread. They've had a five-fold increase in profit over their original forecasts. They'll make nearly $400 million worth of profit. They've reached a point where they cannot store and ship any more grain. They cannot keep up with demand. These companies are making huge record profits. And in all of those areas, electricity, gas, bread, motor vehicles, retail sales, all of those things have seen increases in in prices to the consumer. Blue Scope announced a record profit of $2.8 billion. Steel for construction has gone up immensely. Companies are profiteering and we all pay the price. There is there is no question anymore. Absolutely. And we've seen this phenomenon throughout the world. I mean, good on you, corporations. You've spent all that money on lobbyists and buying politicians, donating to campaigns, you know, funding think tanks and sponsoring various forms of media in all kinds of extremely upsetting ways. And this is the result, you know, weakened labour market regulation, you know, like anti-labour laws, labour with the U, everybody you know, like constant demonisation of any kind of intellectual movement in support of fairness and equity, and this is the result. Like democracy is a use-it-or-lose-it enterprise. Like ultimately we get the conditions that we vote for in the society in which we live and we have to start asking questions about what we can do to organise and fight against the exploitation which is sponsored by corporate interests. And that includes things like, you know, engaging in the policy process, advocating on our own behalf, making our voices heard in the discourse, and, of course, the way that we do that, spoiler alert, in the most effective way possible is to collectivise through, what should we do, Ben? We join our union. Oh Absolutely. My That's such a smart thing to do. Union workers get paid better. They're in more secure work. They're in safer employment. They have fewer incidents of mental health injury or psychosocial hazard injury in the workplace as well. And of course, unions are campaigning on issues and getting a seat at the table for working people. You know, Jim Chalmers and Tony Burke, the minister, uh, the treasurer and the minister for industrial relations, put out a paper today talking about the job summit and saying that it will do five things. Look at maintaining full employment and growing productivity, boost job security and wages, lift participation and reducing barriers to employment, deliver a high quality labour force through skills training and migration and maximise opportunities in the industries of the future. And our good news stories about an industry as a future, so we'll talk about that shortly. But these things happen because the union movement puts pressure on government to do them. If it was just left up to corporations, I mean, one of the, one of the companies that I didn't mention, Van, that that I will mention now is News Corp, because they had record revenue of ten billion US dollars and a ninety five percent increase in their profits. If we think that the mainstream media and companies are going to act in our best interest, let me tell you, there's no coincidence that we have record cuts in wages, record profits for corporations, and Rupert Murdoch's company sitting fat and happy in the middle of it, 
that is not coincidental. The, the solution to that is joining your union, supporting independent voices, getting the message out, talking to each other, talking in your workplace, talking with friends and family, like, share, you know, use this podcast as a conversation point. There's heaps of stuff on our social media pages. Read Van's pieces in The Guardian. Share those with people. Pay attention to what's going to happen at this summit. We should never again have a situation where a prime minister of this country thinks they're going to get away with creating a shadow government. We should never, ever have a situation where we have record low unemployment and at the same time Australians are copping wage cuts with record profits going in the other direction. Like it is economic madness that that is even possible. And, it, I mean, it does cause so many problems. I, I just I just always get back to the idea that where do people think the money to support small business comes from? Like the money to support small business comes from worker wages. Small businesses overwhelmingly provide goods and services to markets of ordinary people. Yeah. <laughs> and if you are the enterprising young entrepreneurial type why would you ever, ever support an economic regime that takes money that could be spent on your business out of the pockets of people who want to spend that money? Absolutely, totally agree, hundred percent. And you see it in you see it in towns around the country where the during the pandemic, when there was money put in people's pockets, it was spent in local communities, and now and towards the end of the Morrison regime. The, that dynamic was inverted and now we're seeing huge profits for massive corporations and we're seeing shop closures uh, in main streets right around the country. Uh, and that's that's a really bad sign. It's a really bad sign. But, look, hopefully the summit is a way forward. I'm, I'm really encouraged. I hope you're really encouraged too. Yeah, um, I'm excited about the summit and I'm really excited about the ACTU, like getting ahead of the discussion as well with all of these papers and making the demands about what an, what an economy, what genuine economic reform as opposed to more of the same. Or And, you know, under nine years of coalition um, policy, economic reform has generally meant exploitation of workers. Like that's yeah. what those terms have meant. How can we further enhance profit, profits through more worker exploitation or the loosening of regulations that allows people to pollute and cause terrible problems in the environment? Genuinely that, and generally that's what that has meant. Economic reform under a Labor government in the new paradigm means things like improving worker wages and conditions, looking at the economy holistically as a, an intersection of forces that can actually mitigate the effects of climate change, change and be a force for climate action as well as community development and education and skills and training and the sharing of resources equitably that empowers communities to to develop, to become more prosperous, to thrive, to drive invention as well as innovation, not just refine what we can already do but think mm. about new ways of doing these things. This is what a managed economy is capable of doing. And so Man. I'm very excited about the summit. I'm I'm getting quite enthusiastic in um, in my hope for it and its ability to put some ideas on the table and some policy and some structure and some ways forward for the kind of economy that benefits us all. Look, Van, I think you and I and probably most of our listeners are pretty close now to almost agreeing with the Aki CEO, Andrew McKellar, who wants sensible and modest reform. I think we want sensible and tangible reform. I think if he's prepared to change one word, we can we can find common ground. And yeah. that's what the summit is all about, finding yeah, common ground. Yeah. So I'll, Andrew, trade, I'll, I'll trade you your moderate reform for tangible reform, some actual reform. In fact, I'd go so far as to say rather than reform, I want improvement. My demand is for yes. economic improvement. Yes, let's let's go. But talking about improvement, that that brings us to our good news for the week because, you know, Australians are very capable as a, as a nation. We, have, we we do a lot of innovation here. We don't always invent things, but we innovate. We take things that have been invented and we improve them and we make them even better. 
think the Hills Hoist, think Wi-Fi, so many great things. And it's happened again. A PhD uh, candidate from UTS, that's the University of Technology Sydney, I think. A wonderful university, I will say publicly, yes. Yep. Has come up with a way to improve the storage of hydrogen. Now, very quickly, hydrogen is a really great way to store green energy. It's primarily done by creating a form of compressed gas or a liquid. Now, that can be expensive and it's not always safe. People who remember history might remember the Hindenburg was powered by hydrogen gas. Um, Now, generally, it's safer than that now, but putting it in a solid state or a metal hydride state is the safest and most effective way to kind of transport it. But that's really slow to convert back into energy, and then so it makes it more expensive and less efficient, and you kind of end up losing the gains of having made hydrogen in the first place. What this Australian university team has done is found a method that reduces the hydrogen solid state charging and discharge times by 59%. That's a huge improvement, and they're still working it through. So they've developed a particular coil that improves the heat removal uh, and improves the energy charge that can be stored. Now, this is this is ground this is potentially groundbreaking stuff. Like it, it means that you can have rechargeable batteries that rely that use solar energy, it, as well as heat pumps because it's extracting the heat and storing it, and heat storage devices that could even be operated in space. Like, you know, this is the kind of stuff that I go, this is good environmental news, this is good science news, this is like good humanity news. Good industry news, good economic potential news. I love news like this. I'm extremely pro. And not one billionaire and his phallic-shaped rocket is involved. I mean, I mean, how, it just, it's good on every level. Or as we say in our house, it's not that Jeff Bezos is a supervillain, it's that he is the (laughs) supervillain. Exactly. So, look, you know, Godspeed to those uh, those researchers at UTS. You know, you have our full support. And for those who don't believe in God, you go with our full solidarity and support as well. That, I think, is the good news. We always give a shout-out to our supporters and we, man, we, we really, we've got more supporters now than ever. We're going to have to find a way to do this that doesn't take up five minutes at the end of every episode. Because I sure know, I think people enjoy it. And you can always time me and let me know my time, actually reading out the names. Um, we were going to thank, because we had our 100th episode last week, which was super exciting, um, I want to thank by name our 100 episode listeners. They are Renee McGee, Vivian King, Adrian Gilchrist, Tony Ambrosio, Catherine Ivey, Leanne Richardson, Gail Vest, Damien Marley, Wasted Potential, Karina Barley, Vic Norton, Kieran Branson, Anthony Villa, Ross Kenner, Mish Phillips and Rochelle. Hey, thank you, thank you, thank you for listening to 100 episodes of this show. That support is amazing. They've had two shout-outs now. They had a shout-out at the start and a shout-out at the end. I know, I know, but I wanted to make sure they felt really, truly loved. Um, I'm going to thank our cadre now, and if you want to set your timers, here we go. Karina Bali at Jane C. Campbell, Leona Gibbons, someone at Jed Carney, Christine Cole, Justin Dando, Tamara James, Bronwyn, Punch Drunk Veteran, at Jenny Forster 7, Joe Fleming, Andrew Pascoe, Cassandra Tui, Addison Official, Ian Hampson, no Twitter for me, Hannah Honda, Sam Herrod, Alexandra Sutherland, Matt Bush, no relation, Richard Sands, I'm not on Twitter, Glenn Robbie, Brash Daniels, Kylie Phillips, Atlee Archer, Linda Cutright, Atlee Ann Chingles, Louise Moran, Donna Chapman, I don't have Twitter, my name is Susan Myers, at Kerry Nash 20, Billy Tree McCabe, Karen Will Robinson, Arissa Simon, at Katagal, Lauren Nash, Matthew Hadley, at Narangaman, John Sharp, and Peter Barth, Aaron Rollins, Louise Watson, also known as Red, White, and Blue Lou. Fantastic. And now for our Extend the Reach followers. Are you ready? Yeah. Melanie Denning, Jody Adon on Twitter, Karen, Penelope Judge, Jane Holloway, Spirit of Anger and Hope, Vicky Hanna at K Not Love Your Work at Didham, Sharon Kelly, Beck and Lola, Richard Grover, someone with Vita W, Tanya George, Nandita Hannon, Bill Collis, Maria Louise Hawker, Megan Weckett, Graham Oxley, Beck Cody, Tracy Lucas, Sandy Honan at Galvest, Greg Martin, Trainer, Amy Fawcett, not on Twitter, Sarah, Eliana and Andrew, Ivor Spillett, Andrew Bryan, Peter O.C., Linda, Sam Hadid, Kip Addison, Lizette, Twizzle, Bunk and Basher, Katie Ward, at the real never long body, Sandy Baumgart, at not Sandy B, Renee McGee, Stuart Mine, Adrian Valente. Mr. at Carrydale 68, Frank Nye, Nye Huis, 
sorry, Frank Nyquist, Erica Pizzuti, Claire, Joe Lupino, Steph Rachel Fitzpatrick, Kerry Arthur, Pauline Bate. A huge congratulations to all of our supporters who have helped us to get to over 40,000 downloads a month. We continue to perform incredibly well on the charts, given that really this podcast is just me and you, Van, and like our listener base trying to make it happen. We, we're not run by Murdoch. We don't have the resources of Channel 9. We don't have the resources of any major masthead behind us. It's just us and you making it happen. So if you do want to support us, check out our Buy Me A Coffee page. It's www.buymeacoffee.com slash week on Wednesday. We do send all of our supporters, whether you're a cadre, extend the reach, or a buck a week supporter, an email with every episode along with some additional links of information that you may find interesting. And of course, we also do our weekend wrap on Sundays where undoubtedly there will be more Morrison revelations to talk about this week. And of course, I do want to give a shout out to our good friends at On The Job. Francis Leach is doing some fantastic work there. That is the Australian Union's official podcast. They are looking at all of those issues that they're covering in those discussion papers, as well as a whole range of issues around industrial action. We haven't had time today to cover off the vast ways in which workers around the country are taking action and standing up for their rights and the rights of all workers. I'd encourage you to check out On The Job uh, and the work that's going on there to see more about that. Van, what a huge day. What a huge like week on Wednesday episode we've had to do today. It has been a big one. It has been a big one. It has been a big one. But uh, you guys, you encourage us, so we keep doing it. <laughs> yeah. Let us know what you think. Like, share. Remember to talk to your friends, colleagues, co-workers, family members. Join your union. And until Sunday, love you, Vanny. I love you too. I miss you. I miss you too. Bye. Bye.